Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my co-host, Dale Stenberg, and I are joined by our dear friend, Dr. Alistair Roberts, in order to discuss the topic of divine rhetoric. Uh, What do we mean by this, and why might it be a worthy thing to pay attention to? Behind our interest in this topic is, in fact, a, a commitment to the supreme authority of God's special revelation, the divine speech of God that we discover in the Bible. Precisely inasmuch as God has revealed himself in speech and in writing, however, we must inevitably ask the question of divine rhetoric. How is it that God presents himself? How does he use the tools of persuasion? Uh, What do the ways that he communicates say about himself? And, And quite importantly, what do they say about man? When, for instance, is divine rhetoric patient and gracious, and when does it come off as as hard and shocking? Of course, as John's prologue notes, it it is Jesus, the Word, who has chiefly explained the Father. And so there's every reason to enter even further into careful study of the words of Christ and even of his embodied gestures in the lived sermon that is the life of Christ— Christ is chiefly our representative, of course, but he is also our pattern, and we can learn an enormous amount by paying attention to how Jesus communicated in various contexts, such that we learn to see the world with his eyes and also become little Christs or or Christians who, who who, who mediate his character. And indeed, this is consonant with the New Testament emphasis that the Christian witness is a whole person to fare. Both in the New Testament and in the Apostolic Fathers, it is it appears to be simply assumed that the whole person is involved in the communication of divine messages to others. One of the things we might do in the future, in fact, is have several discussions on the rhetoric of of various passages of scripture and how this helps us to interpret both the heart of God and the nature of man. Uh, The questions that arise from this sort of approach also help us perhaps to consider the historical nature of divine speech. Uh, In the words of one author, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And so another layer of this rhetorical approach is that we witness divine rhetoric, not to sort of man in an abstract state, as it were, but rather man in a particular moment in historical condition, a condition into which God nevertheless communicates realities that are universal and for us still today. So uh, Alistair, thanks for joining us. Maybe we'll just get right into it. Uh, Tell us perhaps how you think paying attention to divine rhetoric uh, might improve our reading of scripture in a general way, and then perhaps uh, you can give a specific example where this illuminates us just to get the the, the pumps primed, as it were. Thank you for having me on. Um, I think it's definitely something that is of great importance, and it can, as you say, be very illuminating, because we do things with words. Uh, Words are not just containers for propositions or statements. And that's often what, as theologians, we instinctively look for. We're trying to boil away all the rhetoric, try and get behind all the language and the literary elements to get some sort of proposition. And then we'll use those propositions to build some theological edifice. Now, when you look at scripture, often you'll see that the point is not so much the words themselves or even the content of that as what God is doing with those things. And you can think about this in a relationship to another person. You can say something that seems banal. It doesn't seem to be communicating anything. But yet, if it's said in a particular way and in a particular context, it can be doing something quite profound. 
So for instance, when you're comforting a, a child that's wounded themselves, so they, maybe they've fallen over or something, the way that you speak to them is not just a matter of the content of what you're saying, it's the comfort that you're bringing. It's the um, gesture of putting your hand over their shoulder, around their shoulder, or just the way that you look at them and give them a sense of reassurance of your presence. Whatever it is, the communication is not merely a content of speech. Likewise, with God's communication to us, the way that he communicates, what he communicates, is no less important than the content in many occasions. The communication is the larger act, not just something that can be abstracted from that. And that, I think, in specific examples, can help us when we're reading, um, I don't know if we're reading something like a Pauline epistle, it pays to pay attention to the fact that this is a letter. It's addressed to particular people. Um, so, for instance, at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul is not just giving an abstract theology of election. He's addressing this as a source of comfort and encouragement and exhortation to the people that he's writing to. And he's encouraging them to join with him in response to the Father and what he has done in Christ. Now, if we read that and all we're looking for is the theological content, get beneath the husk and then get out this nut of theological wisdom, we've lost a lot of what's taking place there. Mm. We've lost the act of worship. We've lost the address that gives reassurance and comfort and a sense of confidence in what God is doing here and now. And a sense also of how the people to whom it is addressed are implicated in that statement. That statement is not an abstract one. It's a one that is addressed to them about their situation. Another example might be thinking about the differences between law and gospel, which can often be found chiefly in the area of rhetoric. The law takes the form of commands, whereas the gospel comes in a form that's far more attended with forms of persuasion. And when you think about the way that you'd speak to a child, for instance, a young child, you give young, a young child commands in ways that an older child you might not. The older child is persuaded or you're trying to move their will to help them to see something that's inherently good about the thing that you're calling them to do. Whereas the child doesn't yet have that internalized understanding. So you might give them the command with the teaching that in time they will be able to grasp the internal good of what you're calling them to do. And that's one of the differences that we see within the Old and New Testaments and even within the Old Testament itself. This original legal material is very much attended with promises and um, curses. But as we go on, there's a greater sense of the internal goods of obeying the word of God. Mm. And that is not conveyed so much in the form of command, but in the form of persuasion. So I think those are just two very basic examples of how yeah. paying attention to rhetoric can help. Yeah, it seems to me just just really crucial because you know I think you see a lot in the uh, the the theological and in the pastoral world. Uh, you know, the Bible is a big book, and there's a lot in it, and there's a lot of divine emotions, if we if we could say that. But a lot of divine emotions communicated. Sometimes God is very gracious and gentle and and understanding. Sometimes God is quite upset. Uh, and and very often you see in pastoral life, I think I've said this on the program before, but I think this is the conversation where it matters the most. 
very often you see people sort of justify a particular pastoral approach, say like, well, I'm going to get up on the, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to be really hard on this thing over here. And they'll pull out a Bible verse where God is being hard on something, right? Uh, so God can be hard, therefore I can be hard. And the problem there is, is that it's not, uh, to really grasp the attributes of God is not so much grasping a sort of set of definitions, uh, you know, in the cloud that I can just invoke whenever it seems fitting in some kind of, again, somewhat abstract and kind of wooden or uh, a calculative way. But it's rather, uh, I think, it ultimately being the theologian or a lived theologian is internalizing the heart of God such that you you reflect those divine characteristics in your parenting or pastoring or whatever your vocation is, uh, precisely where God would reflect them, that you see human beings and you have his particular complex compassion and you reflect and, and mediate some of that character to those particular instances. Um, and I think one of the things that would be a rewarding study is to sort of really uh, make a kind of careful, careful look at when is it, for instance, that take some take Jesus, for instance, uh, when do we see Jesus responding to situations with uh, more fiery sorts of rhetoric? And when do we see Jesus responding to situations never dismissing sin, never saying sin isn't a big deal, but nevertheless in a, in a, in a more... Um, uh, calm is probably not quite the word I'm after, but I think you get what I mean by contrast. Uh, but in a more, uh, maybe using the word you said, in a more uh, persuasive encounter, that is to say, there's no uh, sort of sort of over drama, there's no drama, you know, sort of before the act of persuasion begins. Um, yeah, so it strikes me as just crucial, actually, to read scripture this way so that we can be trained to to read human beings the way God is reading human beings in scripture in a certain sort of way. Yeah, and I think that's that's just right um, because what we're really talking about is contextualization. You know, uh, you mentioned Ephesians. He's got a particular group of people in mind. He's writing to them. He's trying to uh, speak directly to their situation and offer them comfort and hope. Um, and those are uh, sort of uh, gestures that we can make in our own uh dynamic, whether it's in the local church or, as Joe said, in the family or even with our neighbors. Uh, but Joe, what you just said there, I think is uh, correct. I don't think it's so much uh, when Jesus does it, but who he's addressing when he does it. Uh, mm. So there, there's, a, there's a sort of attitude that Jesus is responding to, particularly in the Gospels. Um, where it's not it's it's not necessarily the outsiders it's the insiders he's dealing with the jews he's talking to the pharisees and he knows exactly how to deal with particular pharisees um, in a way that's going to strike at the heart of what their objections are so i guess alistair what I'm, what i want to ask is how do we cultivate those natural instincts for sniffing out when the appropriate application of a, of a certain uh, rhetorical method? Um, how, how do we, and I know I, I, what I'm not asking is like, give us a step-by-step -step instruction manual on how to do this. Uh, but what are some of the things that we can begin to consciously ask ourselves before we go into um, any uh, rhetorical uh, context to say, okay, I need to be aware of this other person and how I should deal with them. 
Yes, I, I think this is something that we find in most forms of communication when we're trying to communicate something. Am I the person to communicate it? Is this the time to communicate it? Um, is this the way to communicate it? All these sorts of questions are ones that we really need to begin with. Um, and then there's the way in which we're, the sort of angle of approach that we take. And in Christ's ministry, I think one of the things that sets Christ apart is the attention that he gives to people. And that attention is part of his mode of communication. He really speaks intently towards people. There's a sense that he knows people and he can see people in ways that others can't because he's paying attention to them. And that's something that will, is both characteristic then of his teaching, but also something that enables him to teach in the way that he does because he has paid such attention to people. Mm. And so when he talks to someone like the woman of Samaria at the well, he's able to look into her situation and speak the words that she needs to hear in a way that puts his finger on her problems, her issues, but in a way that's gentle, that's not actually confrontational in the way that he is in Matthew 23 when he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and giving all these denunciatory woes. There are very different approaches that he takes, but it depends in large part, I think, on an attention to people, an ability to perceive what's going on with people. And often we're so concerned to get our message out that we're not concerned enough to consider how we're going to get it across. Um, and it, there's a difference between getting your message out and getting it across. Um, you actually mm. have to be very attentive mm. about the context into which you're speaking, the person to whom you're speaking, the time you're speaking in. And that's one of the factors of wisdom. Wisdom is so focused upon speech because speech is the test of your recognition of time, of persons, of um, truth as well, because speech has to bring all of those things together. And it has to give words that are fitting in their season, recognizing that we do things with our words. Words are delivered not as just this inert truth. They're delivered in a way that is supposed to move people to act in a particular way, to respond in a, in a particular kind. And it's designed often with a context that can be more than just the immediate person that you're talking to. Often Jesus talks to a particular person in a way that's heard by other people around, or talks mm. about a particular group of people like the scribes and the Pharisees. Right. And then he's presuming that there is a wider crowd listening yeah. and they're learning from that interaction. And we often think about interacting just in terms of the person you're talking directly to, and we don't pay enough attention to the people who are listening roundabout. And so there are many features of Christ's communication that I think grow and develop from that deep attention that he gives to people. And that, I think, is certainly one of the, the major thing that I think we should emulate. Uh, yeah. We just need to give so much more attention to who people are, where they're coming from, and to communicate that attention in a way that communicates our care and concern and compassion. Because more than anything else, that is something that people came away with from Jesus' communication. They they felt that he had seen them. I think that the what you just said there is so crucial that, that Jesus saw them. And yes. I'm, I'm reminded of this. There's this fascinating text to me. And, and in a way, it was the text that made me think maybe I should pay more close attention to the rhetoric of scripture, or maybe just how much does, does rhetoric matter. But there's this interesting text in Matthew uh, uh, I think it's 21 that I'm, if, uh, 2132. Yes, Matthew 2132. 
but uh, I wrote an article on this for Modern Reformation, the, the spiritual precision of Jesus, because Jesus basically says something to the Pharisees along the lines of John, John came along um, and uh, you didn't believe him. Uh, he says to the Pharisees, but then, uh, but then the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. Uh, and even after that, Jesus basically says, you did not repent so as to believe him. And, and it's an interesting logic. You know, part of this was, you know, thinking like, what, what is Jesus' argument there? And it seems to be something along the lines of, uh, cl clearly the, the Pharisees likely denounced tax collectors and, fair, and prostitutes. Clearly this was, a, you know, part of their teaching was those are the bad guys, don't be like them. Uh, and yet they never repented. Uh, under the ministry of the Pharisees. And yet here comes along yeah. John in the in the wilderness and this whole class of people that had just been dismissed. Like they're those are the bad guys. They're the they're 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 beyond redemption in a sense. Uh, and here comes along John and they start repenting. And Jesus is the implication of Jesus' statement there is something to the effect of that should have made you <laughs> that should have made you think maybe you've got something wrong going on. Um, right. And that's interesting, you know that that, that and that, that sort of got my mind going like that's interesting. What was different, you know, uh, 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 you know, a part of it is, of course, the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't want to dismiss that and make it as though uh, preaching and, the, and, the, and the, the success of a ministry is all about, you know, getting your rhetoric correct. That's not true. Um, nevertheless, the, the, the New Testament assumes that our, 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 the way we come off to others has everything to do with the message that they're going to receive. I mean, it's a, you know, we can be a stumbling block. Uh, and again, even in the, when you read the apostolic fathers, you find them, you know, getting frustrated and slamming their head on the table because, you know, those people over there are giving Christ a bad name and that's against our mission and we don't want to do that. Um, but in any case, it, it just struck me, this is, this is an interesting example. And it goes back to something else you were saying, uh, Alistair, that it's largely about winning the person rather than the argument. And I think that's another thing you see in Jesus is, again, he sees people and he's actually after redeeming the sheep. He's actually after recovering the son, not winning a particular dispute. Uh, and it seems to me that's a contrast between Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the Pharisees, that it was functioning overall, whatever their, you know, big arguments were, it was functioning for a different end than winning their brother. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Although Jesus but, is a very shrewd arguer. He knows how to move the um, argumentative weight of a discussion and to shift the balance to in his favor. And he can do that just on a dime. It's something that's incredible. He'll ask the right question and all the energy that had been driven against him putting him into a trap ends up it's a sort of judo move almost it's it's right. remarkable the way that he does this yeah and so he wins arguments he's shrewd with the shrewd but yes. yet there's great compassion and tenderness in the way that he addresses people who are open to hear and yes. receive the message though shrewd in a uh, what's what's fascinating i think also in the rhetoric of jesus is and this is true of scripture in general you know this proverb um you know, it's the glory of, of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to discover. Jesus is also, uh, he's, he's shrewd, he's incredibly clever, and he's also varying degrees of cryptic. Like there's, there, there's very, you know, on the one hand, it's the parables sort of like they're not going to hear, right? And so he speaks in parables. And that's part of kind of the the messianic prophetic judgment of sorts. But there's a, there's a wider range of that all in Jesus's rhetoric, which is, uh, for instance, he uh, very often doesn't answer questions directly. 
he very often sort of sort of leaves leaves an answer that kind of answers your question, but you have to kind of reach a little bit to go get it. And that's again, this is part of why focusing on this helps us to see what God is after in man. He wants to leave an answer that requires not just this cursory reading, just this like, okay, there's the information I can now download into my head, but something that requires a, at least varying degrees of an adventure of the soul to go attain. Uh, not that it's like, you know, sort of like the philosophers and the enlightened, but it does take people pursuing the father uh, in a way to, uh, to sometimes grasp what Jesus is after. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what we're talking about, Alistair, what, what you're talking about are, are the, um, the way that Jesus persuades. We are talking about rhetoric, uh, which is the art of persuasion. Um, and I, I forget uh, who, what's the name of the, the author? He, um, he was an ecologist. He talked about how the medium was the message. Marshall, oh, Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan. Right. McLuhan. Yeah. That's that's basically what we're talking about here is the medium through which the communication is happening is the message. <clears throat> uh, I can't help but think, you know, 2020 has been a year. Uh, we have an election coming up here in America. You you guys over there in the in the know. old <laughs> <laughs> and the rhetoric and social media has been sort of increasing. Um, and there's lines that are being drawn, even in the Christian, uh, you know, Christendom. And one thing that I've noticed, and I've talked with my elders about this at length and people in my church and, and in my community, is I say, you know, I don't know why we started to adopt this uh, method of talking about politics that is so abrasive all the time. And normally I'll get an answer like, well, now's not the time for to, to be persuasive. We're not trying to win anybody at this point. We're just trying to preserve any semblance of sanity and morals and virtues and ethics that we can before it's ripped out of our hands by the liberals and trampled under the foot by the progressive march towards Marxist utopia or something, right? Um, and I, I, I can't help but feel like, well, that's not at all the example that we get in the Bible. Um, we, we see in the Bible a, a commitment to being um, gracious in our, in our speech and to winning people to the truth. Yes, there are examples that you can pull out wherein Jesus or the apostles speak very harshly to their to you know, false teachers coming into the church, trying to disrupt order. And I understand that. However, um, the default position that we should take as Christians is to be gracious and persuasive. After all, what we have is the most persuasive thing in the world. It's not like we have to try to cram our ethics into a, a culture that hates uh, everything we believe in. What we're trying to do is appeal to their natural inclinations that they have because they're made in the image of God. And as we, as Joe alluded to the Proverbs there, it's a king draws out from the heart. Um, that, that is a noble endeavor. And what I'm starting to see and what I've been witnessing over the last four years is it's like, no, it's not time for that sissy 
crap. Uh, we need to sharpen our battle axes and run to the front of the line and slaughter the enemy before they, you know, make us go to public school or something. Uh, so, so, so Alistair. I'm a victim myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think, and, and this is what I guess I'm trying to ask is <clears throat> how do we know when it's appropriate uh, Alistair, how do we know when it's appropriate to employ the various forms of rhetoric that we see in the New Testament? Like, what should we be looking for? Uh, you mentioned Jesus be, uh, not only looking at the person, which is so crucial. And we're actually going to be, uh, Lord willing, talking to Carl Truman about his new book on the the rise of, uh, uh, what's the name of it, Joe? The, the rise, rise of the of modern the, self, I think. Rise yeah. of the modern self, which we'll get at this. But um, he, Jesus was also very aware of the people that were watching. And I'm very conscious of that when I start a thread on Facebook and I get into an, a, a conversation with somebody in the comments, I'm very, I'm trying to be very sensitive to the people that are reading it. And that is actually being interpreted uh, in some circles as a vice rather than a virtue. So how can we think about the gravity of the Western world and what it's going through and when it's appropriate to employ different rhetorical tactics, so to speak. Yeah, so I, I think at the very outset, we should recognize that we are operating within a context collapsing context. I mean, mm -hmm. social media may seem like a context, but it's really something that is an acid eating away at all sense of context. So when I speak on social media, mm -hmm. there's no clear sense of the con many myriad contexts that I'm speaking into within which my words will be heard. And it's one of the struggles when we're trying to um, have certain discussions. So for instance, let's say we're talking about um, an issue of sexuality. There will be people who are hearing that in the context of personal struggles or someone in their family that is dealing with these issues in a very immediate way. And then there'll be those who are thinking about maintaining the lines within the church of orthodoxy. Those are very different conversations, but my words are being heard in the context of both. And it's very difficult to speak to both simultaneously. You can't really. And that's, first of all, that is what we're really facing. It's one of the reasons I do appreciate podcasts a bit more than typical social media, because it takes a bit of time to get into a podcast. You have a sense of the context into which people are speaking. You're overhearing a conversation with people who know each other, who have a, a sense of shared understanding about what they're talking about. And when that does not exist, I think words kind of float in a way that they can be um, taken into all sorts of alien contexts, and it's not entirely clear how they'll be used. Now, when we meet that sort of situation, it's very easy for us to see the craziest positions on social media. We think we have been given this great pulpit of social media and we now have to shout as loud as we can to reach right. those people at the back who aren't going to listen to us otherwise. And we see also the people who get amplified on social media are precisely the people who are making the biggest noise about these things. And right. that can easily be something that pushes us in the direction of that sort of speech in a way that leads to nothing good in the end. But that task is still one that falls to us, even if we have a medium or set of media that really militate against careful speech. 
we still have to communicate with people and we have to use this really bad set of tools sometimes. And there, I think it's being able to establish enough of a context that gives people um, a knowledge of what you're about, the things that really matter for, for you, that you're not driven by the arguments. You're driven by a pursuit of truth, for instance, or you're driven by a concern for other people more generally. And when you speak in a more a denunciatory way, it's something that is contextualized by all of that. Now, when you're having a personal relationship context and you're speaking to uh, your next door neighbor or you're speaking to some friend at church, it's a lot easier. A lot of that stuff is given. And so you don't have to establish that in order to have a context within which to speak. Right. But online, I think we need that a lot more. The other thing I'd say is that it is, it's not the task of everyone to do this. Often yeah. it can be good to have people engaging in different sorts of discourse alongside each other. And sometimes there's a time for a more um, gentle form of interaction with someone who's really gotten things badly wrong alongside someone who's actually challenging challenging them quite forcefully um, and the other thing is I find having forms of conversation alongside each other so I'll occasionally have a more direct confrontation with someone and then I'll privately um, DM them or email them and talk through these things in private so mm. those two conversations are going concurrently and they understand this is not personal we can have this dif difference quite publicly and forcefully, but ultimately we're on good terms. And then with that, I think what you're saying about paying attention to the people around, it's one of the ways we just keep calm. Um, I find that you need to mediate these things. Um, it's Rene Girard's understanding of mimetic desire and mimetic emotion as well, that when you see someone else and you're engaging with someone else, you have that imitative and dynamic that starts to develop. So if someone's angry, it's very difficult not to become angry too. Yeah. And so you need some mediator to help you to engage with an angry person without becoming angry yourself. So if I'm praying for the person, mediating my relationship with that person by relating to God, mm. and then also relating to the calm person who's looking in and listening to what's taking place, focus upon them and then talk to that person who's angry. And you'll find it's a lot easier to remain calm and the conversation actually is more productive all around. But right. it is a really difficult task to do. And most of us, I think, would be best avoiding it, leaving it to <laughs> people who are closer to those with whom we're communicating. Yeah. Your point about you know multiple approaches, I think, is really crucial because a lot of the debate that I see on these issues uh, you know, in the theological world is mostly about people uh, uh, saying this, the approach that I'm taking is the only one and the approach that you're taking uh, is bad because it's not this one. Whereas like that doesn't, that doesn't work in real life. You know, an army, uh, you know, a general has many battalions and they're doing different things and they don't even really need to understand the battalions, what each other are doing because somebody else is kind of coordinating all of their efforts. And I think there's something similar here to the New Testament teaching about the divine gifts that we have in the church, that God is coordinated just as the body is coordinated. He's coordinated all the gifts to kind of to collectively and together be the presentation of his truth, uh, you know, the embodied truth that he wants it to be. 
uh, where people get in trouble again is, is where it's sort of like, this is the approach that we need to take. And, and I think that what's interesting is when you, when, when people are that kind of one noted about the only right approach to take, they wind up giving, having very extreme versions of whatever it is they do, you know, sort of the nice guy who can never wind up saying the hard thing or the, or the person who only says hard things, but it winds up becoming so perfunctory and so predictable that it's like, you know, uh, it's like distributing prophetic drive-bys, like easily distributed breath mints. You know, it's like, uh, you know, at some point this denunciation doesn't seem to come with weeping and, and, and sort of sobriety of soul, you know, that you would expect with such things. Um, but going back to something, you know, you were asking, Dale, I guess I'm just going to add to Alistair here. You know, there is a question of like, when do you give up you know, when do you stop persuasion? You know, when do you say like, and there are examples of this in scripture, you know, there's, um, you know, in second Chronicles, when Israel finally goes into exile, the whole history is sort of God saying, don't do the thing and Israel doing the thing. And then more and more prophets. But the language at the end of second Chronicles is interesting. It says, uh, I'm going to butcher it a bit, but it's something to the effect of there's no health in the body left. Uh, there's a level, there's a level of just lostness that exile is just necessary at this point. The land has to vomit these people out. But I, my own suspicion is that our temptation in our own society is to draw the line of giving up on people so incredibly early, like right when it gets frustrating. Well, you know, I tried to talk to them and they're just are who they are. And you just think like, I don't know, at least I, I tend to think like, really? Like how much effort did you actually put into that really? I mean, God came down in the form of his son and lived for 33 years. I mean, Jesus with his disciples, right. you know, the, the, the level of just year, year after year of just frustration where you just, you know, you see Jesus going, oh boy, guys, uh, like you don't get this yet. You know, <laughs> you know, it's a lot, it took a long time that, you know, uh, you know, this is, again, it's the method God in fact employs is, 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 is heavy, heavy, uh, investment. And in fact, that's one of the denunciations of the Pharisees. Again, I think that text that I was quoting earlier, one of the denunciations is effectively, this is a judgment on you because you wrote these people off. Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes for the Pharisees were just gone. Uh, and in Jesus' whole message is like that. It, 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 the danger there, I think, the spiritual danger of coding people that way, of, of, of drawing the line of they're gone in the wrong place, is that that reflects a kind of spiritual evaluation system that is quite dangerous. Because inevitably what you're gonna wind up doing is creating a system where you're on this side of the line. And, and, and in fact, what Jesus kind of shows the Pharisees is the very fact that you drove the line, drove, drew the line here means something is fundamentally screwed up about your system. Uh, and part of what it is is that like, you don't think you're sick. Or at least, I mean, of course, Pharisees admitted they were sinners. That wasn't, you know, it's not like any Pharisee thought they were perfect. But Jesus is saying, like, the depth of your sickness, the, the very, your very ability to draw such a distinction between yourself and these people is part of your disease, you know, your spiritual disease. And so I think it's not just a matter of clarifying this kind of thing. I think it's not just a matter of of, uh, uh, you know, just sort of, sort of calibrating our rhetorical tools. It's also a matter of capturing the divine heart and then capturing who we are so that we actually relate to people in a right way. And uh, I've, I've mentioned him on the program several times, I believe, uh, but it's worth mentioning again. Uh, the person I think of in, in modern times along these lines is this, this guy, Daryl Davis, 
who uh, African-American gentleman who persuaded 200 members of the KKK to leave the KKK. And I often think like if that guy, you know, came to most of us before that ever happened and said, you know what I'm gonna spend my life doing is being a black guy, uh, trying to get members of the KKK not to be, you know, I think most people would say, that sounds like the stupidest life project I could like that. What a waste of time. Mm. And yet only by, by sort of not being cynical and only by seeing like, actually they're human beings who are, who are agitating for goodness because they're humans. Did he actually have that endurance to move out into the darkness and, and, and spiritually help these people? Uh, and I think that's what the kind of thing that we're called to in the new Testament. So, yeah. I would also add to that, that, communication is so much about who you are um it's a note a point i've made that when we think about someone like jordan peterson and his power with young men the power is often has often been because of who he is he can say things that anyone else could say and they'd be brushed off they would be seen as this isn't really telling me anything it's not the content but it's the fact that he's the one saying it he's a sort of father figure and in the same way, if you're someone who has demonstrated your concern for someone, if you're someone who can say something to someone, and it's very clear you're saying this because you want their good and because you have a deep compassion for them. And also that you are someone who's built credibility um, with them, or you're someone who has the, um, you have the ability to speak into their situation with authority that others would not because you've got experience. Age, I think, is a huge part of communication. Mm. If, you, if you're a really young person and you have opinions about everything, you'll find people won't take them very seriously. Those same opinions voiced by someone who has actually earned those opinions through experience actually have weight. Um, but your words don't have weight of themselves. What gives them weight is often your ability to wield them as someone who has held on to those words or someone who has um, dispensed those words with care into the specific situation, mm -hmm. your knowledge of the person to whom you're speaking, whatever it is, we so often are unmindful about ourselves and what we bring to the conversation just by our very presence. And that presence can set the entire tone of a conversation. When one person walks into a room, people's whole mood or um, mode can change. They can shift in their attitude just depending on who's speaking to them and so we need to be the person that will be heard yeah that's a uh, jordan peterson is an interesting example because it reminds me of something i wanted to ask you um because part of what makes him so effective i found is um it, it's almost gestural it is the words it is his thoughts but it's actually the 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 slowness and often the gravity with which he speaks and very often even pauses he takes. I've seen him answer questions and he'll kind of close his eyes and pause and you get the sense of a person that is choosing words carefully. There's something embodied in other words about the, the way in which this communication is. It's not just a set of words. And, and that reminds me, you know, sort of uh, part of communication, in fact, essential to communication is the body. It's, it's the, you know, embodied gesture and that sort of thing. And I wonder if, um, you know, you've read the New Testament uh, and, and particularly the Gospels, I think, uh, far more than I have. To what extent can you in, can it sort of see the, the, the dimension to which the, the body of Christ uh, is integral to his 
various acts of persuasion. I mean, in, in one sense, of course, this is obvious. The coming in a body and being a body and dying on the cross for us is the ultimate sort of, uh, it's, it's substitution for us, but there is also something true about the, the uh, what do you say, the, the, the exemplary theory or the moral influence theory of the atonement. This is also God showing us uh, something uh, of, of the life he would have us be, this dying for others kind of, kind of way of being. But what, what, what role do you think the body of Christ plays in his persuasive, uh, in, his, uh, in his rhetoric, in his teaching ministry? Yes, that's a good question. We don't really have a lot of scenic details in scripture. When we do find scenic details, they tend to be more than just there for historical verisimilitude. They're there to actually tell us something a bit more. Um, Jesus is someone who, when he heals people of um, uncleanness, he touches them. Um, that's a powerful form of communication with his body. To actually reach out and touch someone who is a leper is they've not experienced touch like that for many years, perhaps. The fact that someone has purposefully gone out and touched them, it's not just um, a maneuvering of their body, it's a personal address. I mean, we can think about the different forms of touch that we experience. Mm. If you're in a crowded um, uh, metro or something like that, and you're brushing up against people all the time as you're trying to elbow your way into a place, you find that there's just, it doesn't feel like anything to you. You don't feel personally addressed by the touch that you're experiencing. People can be um, pushing you and um, jolting you and jostling you, but there's nothing there. But if there's a loved one who um, caresses your cheek or something like that as a sign of affection, it really means something because it's a personal address by their body to your body and not just your body in this sort of impersonal sense, but to you as a body. And Christ addresses people in that way. He's also someone who is touched by people. He's, I find this one of the interesting features of the gospels that the disciples seem to have a very strong, the male disciples seem to have a very strong relationship with Christ and his mission and his teaching and these sorts of things. And the women seem to have a very strong relationship to his body. And so, Hold, grasping onto his feet or, um, or washing his um, feet with tears and uh, ointment or whatever it is, these actions towards Christ's body are seen to be powerful things. They're expressions, mm -hmm. communications of love and the need for not just Christ's teaching and his counsel, but his presence in a very rich and embodied sense. And Christ communicates his body in that sort of way to his disciples as well, in ways that they would come to understand in greater detail in time. So the way that he removes his outer garment and dresses as a servant and then goes outside the outer area of the um, place where they're sitting and washes their feet. It's an action that is a deeply physical one, but it's an action. It's also repeating the action in many ways that's, the woman of Bethany performed yeah. upon him. There's a recognition of his body, and then he gives a recognition to the body of his disciples. And so I think that is just one example. Maybe you can think about the woman um, in the story of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and Jairus's daughter. Yeah. Um, he's interrupted, and he's on the way to Jairus's house. And then this woman, he gives her direct attention after she has touched him and asks, who touched, touched me? This sort of action, I think, 
creates a personal bond um, in a way that actions apart from touch would not. We can also see the way that Christ, um, occasionally there will be ways in which he uses sight in a powerful way. So when Peter um, denies Christ, he turns around and looks at him. And you can think <laughs> that, that one gaze communicates something more powerful and devastating than anything else Peter has ever heard in his life. Mm -hmm. But that act is something that um, is communicated just by a gesture, by a, a gaze or looking at someone. Christ will also gaze at people intently on other occasions as a way of communicating himself to them. And the, the apostles take up this example. They look intently upon the man who is lame at the beautiful gate and other examples like that. And I think that is part of Christ's communication too. Hmm. You know, I want to um, circle back around to something that you said uh, just a little bit ago, Alistair, <clears throat> and that was about um, when somebody walks into a room, just their presence can sort of change the vibe, right? Like you immediately know like, okay, here comes Joe. He's never going to shut up. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. uh, but, but I, I, everybody knows this. We don't have to sort of tease that phenomenon out to convince anybody that that's true. We all experience that. Uh, and I want to talk about, so, um, and we don't have to stay on this long as we're sort of getting near the end of our time here, but uh, recently, John Piper wrote an article on Desiring God, outlining uh, what he, th the way that he's thinking through um, the 2020 election. And he never names names. He never brings up Trump. He never brings up Biden. Uh, but he does just bring up basic biblical categories on how we should be thinking about character. Um, and, a, and a lot of the people thought that he was assaulting Trump, like he was going directly after Trump. And I think that just says something right there that people are associating that immediately with Trump being a bombastic, sort of a haughty, arrogant, self-flatulating uh, man. Um, and these are bad things. We should not look for these things in our leaders, which is true. It's just true. Um, but I've noticed that the criticisms of Piper are really getting at the that what you talked about. Just the presence of Trump, I think, communicates something to everyone, really. And I'm not saying that Christians can in good conscience vote for Trump. But what I am saying is you must at least acknowledge that. Like there has to be an acknowledgement that this man... And uh, the way that he's lived his life and the way that he continues to conduct himself as the uh, leader of America. I mean, the, the, one, the first debate between him and Biden was an absolute disaster. And if we're talking about rhetoric, this is like the prime. This is what I would show students and I would say, OK, here's rhetoric 101 class. Watch this debate don't do any of those things, right? Like <laughs> do the opposite of whatever these men are doing right now. Um, but I find that people, like there's been this shift in how Christians, even reformed Christians, begin to think about the employment of a Trump-esque sort of uh, rhetoric and they dismiss all of the bombastic uh, and haughty and crude language as, 
they put it in comparison to the Democrats and they'll say, well, Trump just says mean words. And that doesn't compare to the 60 million babies that have been murdered in abortion. And what Piper was saying is, that's a really dangerous way to think, actually. We can't just sidestep what this man's character is communicating, not only to the country, but to the rest of the world. Uh, and if we, if we don't at least just say that what he's doing is icky and really not good, then that opens us up to an entire, I mean, where do we draw the line then? There is no line at that point. You can just simply regurgitate that, that logic is, well, mean words aren't really that bad. And what I think that the conversation that we're having right now is pointing to is that no, actually the method of rhetoric that you choose to use is so extremely important, not only for interpersonal relationships, but for the order of civilizations. Uh, and if we have good rhetoricians that are uh, leading uh, our nation, then that is going to reverberate out into the body politic in healthy ways and vice versa. It works the other way too. So I, I say all that just to say, I very much appreciate you bringing that up because it's something that Christians should carefully consider before we just dismiss what, what Trump's rhetoric as just mean words. It's something much more sinister to, than that. And we must be able to say it. And, and we must be able to say it without drawing the ire of our brothers and sisters in Christ as if we're now the enemy. Um, and if we do find ourselves in that position, then whoever finds themselves in that position, be committed to cordial rhetoric to combat that thing. Uh, so don't fall into the snare, so to speak. So I just wanted to sort of build on that and say, I appreciated what you say. And that's a very wise way to think. I think on that particular front, it's interesting thinking about what it means for John Piper to speak on these issues. He's someone who has a lot of gravitas to speak on these sorts of questions. Whatever people think about his political viewpoint, he has weight because he's someone who very clearly takes God very, very seriously. And yes. he has a sense of the glory of God that you just don't see elsewhere. Mm. And when he speaks to these issues, he's not speaking as someone who has the political preoccupations that pervade the current Christian context. He's speaking as someone who is obsessed and impassioned about God. Mm. And that's something that you can see looking around you with the fixation upon these political questions and antagonisms. Yeah. People aren't talking about God much. And there's something yeah. huge, a glaring, gaping hole at the heart of our public discourse when we'll spend so much more time talking about our political antagonisms than about the glory of God. And when you have someone who has made his life's work, this focus upon God, this desiring of God, then for him to speak out about this and put his finger on that, I think should carry weight. And even the people who strongly disagree with him, I think they can't just dismiss him. And I think they know that there's something about this man's words that carry weight because it is he who is saying it. If there, mm. it was some young upstart preacher, it wouldn't um, in the same mm. way. But I happen to disagree with some of his um, understandings of what voting means, but at the very heart of it, what he's saying is true. And um, when you have that sort of 
character being exemplified at the very heart of our politics, it perverts and pollutes so much else. And I think you can see this in the just the context of Christian discourse now. It's mm. so perverted by this, um, this sort of speech that is just cruel, antagonistic for the sake of being bombastic and belligerent. And there's very little sense of grace or words that have been weighed out or the need to have the weight to speak in a way that is um, that has credibility and gravitas. So I just I think we've lost those things. And so having someone warning us about that, who has exemplified that throughout his ministry and who speaks with an integrity that whatever you think about his theology is very clearly borne out in his character, yeah. I think. Mm. That is something that should be a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, well, we'll 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 close down in just a second here. Maybe if if either of you have a final a final comment, um, uh, just to our listeners, we we anticipate having a, a you know a number of discussions about this because one of the things that might be fun. Uh, Alistair, again, a friend of our program, we might have him back and maybe just sometimes look at particular passages of scripture and then sort of take these tools, these, the, you know, sort of this, the, the tools of communicative apparatus or whatnot, and sort of say, what's going on in the individual moves in this particular text? You know, and what does, well, you know, why does, why does Jesus make this particular argument in this particular way? What do his gestures have to do? What does the context have to do with? And again, the premise there, the, the premise there is that if scripture is God's word and God is God is God, <laughs> you know, and he's he's the perfect person, he's the perfect, he's perfection himself, presumably we can learn something about what it means to speak, you know, to have this mysterious logos to be appropriated by this weird thing called language presumably we can learn about how to direct ourselves in that meaning-filled thing uh, by attending to god's own speech and learning to speak like him which is in a, in a way just learning to become like him yeah. uh, maybe a last comment i'll throw out there and then i'll throw it over to you two before we we we, we go is a uh, i think for instance um Alistair, you talked about reading the epistles. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that's really interesting in the epistles, you know, very often we go to church and you 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 sort of, you know, you take uh, 1 Corinthians or Romans or something and the pastor goes through it for a year or something. Uh, and that's appropriate. That's a good exercise and it's a, it's a wonderful way to learn. But we can kind of miss sometimes perhaps that um, Romans is, a, is, a, is in part a single communicative act. Its original audience heard this as a single sermon. And so none of the, you know, Romans 4 and this particular verse in Romans 8, they were never disconnected from the whole of Romans, which again is kind of one sermon. Um, and so, uh, and I think when we think that way, we realize that Paul and Jesus are, are rarely communicating sort of single noted things because the a communicative act contains the whole epistle. And so you take even uh, the, I remember noticing this in seminary in the Corinthian correspondence, um, you know, there's no place maybe besides Galatians where Paul is more, uh, you know, swinging his fists than in the Corinthian correspondence because the Corinthians are going nuts. But it's important to, to note in uh, even 2 Corinthians, which is, I mean, 2 Corinthians is the only epistle where Paul ends with, uh, you know, hey, guys, uh, we need to make sure, you know, <laughs> examine yourselves to make sure you're even in the program, you know, basically. Um, 
But there's moment after moment in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, I am so encouraged by you. He, he thickly affirms them over and over in the Corinthian correspondence, the entire congregation. I'm so, my heart is full. I have joy. I see this and it makes me glad. And he's, there's affirmation just riddled through the Pauline corpus that contextualizes a lot of that. Like, okay, he would, you know, he was kind of hard over there so I can be hard over here too. Well, he was, it wasn't an abstraction. It was part of a whole communicative act, which included an enormous amount of encouragement and affirmation. And I think that's, that's crucial also in kind of thinking through how do we, how do we uh, learn from and, and become guided by this scriptural rhetoric? Any, any final thoughts from you two though? Well, I, I want to say that, um, uh, Alistair, your Bible reading, uh, your daily Bible reading, the, the recording that you do, and maybe we can just link that on uh, the show notes for yes, YouTube, Joe. I'll, do that. I'll find it and well, you have it. You listen to it. Yep. Uh, but that has been incredibly, especially to this end that we're talking about, extremely good, brother. So I want to encourage you and everybody that listens to this um, podcast. Uh, we'll have a link set up for Alistair. Keep up the good work. That's all I wanted to say for my sort of final closing thought there. Yep. Thank you. Just one thought in conclusion for people to ponder, perhaps. When we think about... Christ's gestures, the importance of his body, we have a continuation of those gestures in many ways. Christ took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and told them to eat it in a gesture of their own. And we continue that action in our mm. celebration of the Lord's Supper. We also have the gesture of baptism. And in those acts, we're being addressed not just as um, minds, we're being addressed mm. in our bodies. And our bodies are sites where we feel all of these guilt and we feel isolation we feel judgment the gaze of other people that makes mm -hmm. us feel insufficient in some way we feel our mortality in our bodies all these different things and christ in those acts of the sacraments those are gestures of christ towards us and i think reflecting upon them in that way can be very illuminating to continue this discussion of the rhetoric into our own experience yeah very good well um Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, as always, you can check us out on YouTube, any podcast catcher. We're on iTunes, and we'll have all these linked. Uh, you can also head over to Facebook and uh, like the Pilgrim Faith uh, podcast Facebook page. And if you want to join the discussion, you can join the Pilgrim Faith uh, podcast group, and uh, we can also link that, Joe. Uh, but until next time, thank you so much, Alistair. Joe, I love you, brother. Love you, too. And we all will right. see you guys next time. See you later. Thank you.